Last week we started our series on Ephesians. It's a short book that gives this incredible meaningful look into what Paul understands the gospel to be. And, and, and when you get into the book of Ephesians, what you're going to see as we go through this study is it has two parts to its structure uh, that really help us to the core gospel. It really is the meat of the gospel. Romans is going to flesh this out in so much more detail, but Ephesians is giving you this like really good, Paul needs this letter to go around to so many Christians and churches and let them understand what the message is uh, so that they can proclaim it to others and the kingdom may grow. And then right about the end of, of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, he's going to get to this word, therefore. And the rest of the book is going to pivot into telling you as a result of this gospel message being true, here's what it means for your life in the body of believers. Here's how you're going to live this out in the world. And so we start with the foundation of the gospel, and then he moves into the application and implications of what's going on as a result of it in our world today. And now it's not all that way. He's got a little bit of overlap, but that's really how he's laying out the book. Here's the gospel. Here's how someone that follows Christ lives as a result of that. And so in the beginning, in chapter 1, he really starts out by saying in this long sentence that we looked at last week that God has done so much for us in Christ. And as he's laying out this gospel vision, he tells us that he's blessed us in the King. He chose us in Him. He predestined us for adoption through Him poured grace on us in Him, gave us redemption in Him, set out His plan in Him, intends to sum up everything in Him. We obtained our inheritance in Him. We set our hope in Him. We have been sealed in Him with the Spirit. Boy, that preposition in right there is so important, isn't it? We lose a little bit of what Paul is doing in English because the translators get to where they don't like using the word in over and over and over again. English wants variety to add depth. Uh, Greek wants repetition to add meaning. Uh, Paul uses this preposition in, and he's going to come up again here in chapter 2 a lot today, uh, to tell us that we are flawed, broken humans that are in a state of lostness and a state of death. But Jesus, through the gospel, places us in Christ. And, and then you start asking, well, where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is, as was mentioned in our communion talk earlier, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. So where do you want to be in your state of death and lostness or in Christ? You want to be in Christ. For Paul, this is a, a location where you are. And, and that's a weird idea for us. And he doesn't really give us an explanation of what he's doing. But what he wants us to understand is if you are in Christ then you are where Jesus is and what's going on in Jesus' reality becomes in some real way your reality now. This is part of Paul's understanding of the gospel. So all of these things that God has done in Christ are received by us because we are located in Jesus in some very real way even now. We are in Christ. It is geographical. It is locative. Uh, it is placing us in Him. And we get the idea early on in Ephesians that God has accomplished everything through Jesus Christ for our good benefit. And that God has somehow done that by placing us within Jesus. And God did all of those things for us because of His love for us. 
And because of this love for us, there's two incredible takeaways. One is that God gives us His Spirit to dwell within us, so we're no longer separated from God by our sin and our, our, our mistakes and our flaws and everything else. We now have God dwelling within us because we're dwelling within Christ. And as a result of that relationship, we become adopted children of God. We talked last week about how adoption stories always come at a cost, but the price is always, always worth it. And that's where Paul begins this story of the gospel to the Ephesians, is that God loves you so much that he has located you inside of Jesus so that you might receive the Spirit within us so that we might become adopted members of God's family. That's the story as it begins. And now he's going to continue in Ephesians chapter 2, which is our text today. We're going to go through the first 10 verses. In Ephesians chapter 2, he keeps going and explains what this means for people in a more specific way. So Paul now continues, as for you, now you need to jump down a little bit to verse 3, uh, where he says, and all of us also. And you go, well, wait a minute, who is you and who is us? Uh, Paul is almost, almost always, when he's having conversations about you and us, y'all and, and we, when he gets into that language, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. And so many of the complications that Paul runs into in the early Christian communities dealt with the fact that he was taking people who used to not be followers of Yahweh and God, who didn't know the law, and he's trying to bring them alongside pagans who used to worship all kinds of idols and do all kinds of other things and teach them how to be brothers and sisters with one another after years of animosity and enmity. That they have to figure out how to do worship together after worshiping so differently in their different temples and synagogues and everything else for, for centuries. Paul's got to pull all of this together. And so as he starts here and he says, as for you, he really means Gentiles. As for you Gentiles, as for those of you who used to be outside of the people of God and now who are in it, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the way of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. He goes right at Gentiles. He says, Gentiles, do you know what your life was before you were in Christ? Let me tell you exactly what you were. You were dead. You were dead. You were dead in your sin and your transgressions. And you were following this evil spirit that was in the air. And that phrase there kind of has two different implications as I kind of study it and understand it. One is, it seems to be a reference to Satan. That Satan and the spiritual forces of evil that Paul's going to talk more about in the letter uh, are alive and active in the air. But it also has this feel that we kind of know today that there's just a certain evil that's in the air. It's just kind of everywhere, and, it, and it's specific in that it is this evil spirit, but it is also general, and it's just kind of in the culture and the world. And you can live according to the evil uh, spiritual forces of this world, and you can live according to just the general evil that exists in any time and place. Paul says to the Gentiles, you were dead living that way. You were completely dead. And that spirit continues to be at work in those who are disobedient. 
And he continues now in verse 3, and he says, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So now Paul says, okay, you Gentiles, you were dead in your sins and your transgressions, but all of us, all of us Jews, all of us people of God, descendants of, of Abraham, Moses, and David, uh, all, of, all of us who have been trying to live according to the law and the Torah, and we go to synagogue and we do all the right things. Here's what you need to know about us, is that we also, by our nature, were deserving of wrath. Because we also followed our evil desires and thoughts. We also had the problems that the Gentiles have. It's not an us versus them problem. You had that problem and were dead. We had that problem and were deserving of wrath. We read the story of the prodigal son and we, we read it. The prodigal son went out and squandered everything in wild living. He was dead in his transgressions. The older brother wouldn't come in because he'd done everything right and deserved all this stuff. And the father had to go out to him and say, why won't you come to my feast? Both of them were dead and deserving of wrath in their very different ways of living. And so Paul's understanding of the gospel is rooted in this idea that whether you're someone who goes out and gets wild and crazy and lives like the pagans do, or whether you're someone who thinks that you're good enough, great enough, awesome enough to, to earn your way there, you're both headed on a one-way street to destruction. You're lost. You're dead and there's no way back that involves you getting what you want and feeling good about yourselves or you doing uh, everything that you think you ought to be doing out of a sense of self-righteousness, thinking you can earn your way into it. Those are both paths to the same destruction. So what hope is there? But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. So because God is rich in mercy, we are dead in our tracks because of the mistakes we've made, and even our attempts to not make mistakes have led us to a place of death. And Paul writes... Paul writes that it is God who is rich in mercy who made us alive with Christ. That with still has that idea of in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ or in Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And God raised us up with Christ. Now has Paul died and been resurrected yet when he's writing this? He has not. And yet what he says is that God has raised us up and seated us with Christ. He doesn't say God will raise us up and seat us with Christ. He doesn't say, I look forward to the time that is coming when I will be raised up and seated with Christ. And he doesn't say, I'm seated with Christ because I'm Paul and, and you're not. What he says to all these people who are now followers of Jesus is he says, listen, you're located in Jesus right now. 
And Jesus is sitting in heaven with God right now. And if you're in Jesus and he's with God and he's seated up there with all this authority and power that I've talked about recently, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, if you're in Christ, you already are seated there. Now, how does that work that you and I are seated right here in this room and seated with Christ in heaven? I don't know. That's part of the mystery of the gospel, and there's still a number of mysteries that work out. But what I do know is that I have already begun to become made alive in Christ and am seated with Him in heaven as a result of the grace of God. Not my earning it but because God's good, merciful gift places me there and makes me alive with Christ now. So often as Christians today, we get so focused on what's going to happen after we die and then move into our life and resurrection and being seated with God. We need to know that there is some sense that we have already received that gift that we are already, in some sense, part of the heavenly kingdom, that we are already, in a very real way, made alive in Christ. And if we understand that, it should begin to shape not just how we look forward to our what happens after death, but it should begin to radically shape how we live now, how we live in the present So Paul continues to think about what that might look like, and he says, And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace, expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast." For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God's already seated you at the right hand with Jesus in heaven, and He's already got jobs in store for you here. And you are His handiwork and His masterpiece, and He's creating in you someone who will do His good work in this world Now, not waiting for Jesus to come back and fix it all, but saying, Jesus, as your person now who is seated with you in authority, I'm not waiting for you to come back. I know that you've got jobs for me to do today. And so I get about the business of not waiting to die so I can be resurrected. I get in the business of knowing I used to be dead and I'm already alive in Jesus Christ. And I start living like I'm alive in Jesus Christ. You know, if we ever understood that it wasn't about our rule following that really got us saved. A lot of times we get caught up in the shame and the guilt of the mistakes we made and we think I'm just an unsavable person. And that drives us into doing nothing. And there's other times that we think, if I just follow all the right rules and do all the right things and abstain from all the things I ought not to do, then I can be a good enough person and I'll be okay. And that can lead us into inactivity because we don't want to make mistakes or do the wrong things. 
But if we ever understood that it's not about our wrong actions or our right actions, that it really is about knowing that Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected, gives me the gift of being saved, so instead of being dead, I become alive, I should really get about living. And I should really be the kind of person who lives like I'm already seated with Jesus, and I'm already bringing the kingdom into existence in the lives of my family and my neighbors and my community and the world today. And we become people of grace. When I was worried about other people's mistakes or other people's right actions, we become worried about communicating to them that God loves them, wants them to have his spirit to be adopted as his children. And that kind of life becomes a totally different type of Christian living. A totally different walk where we join Jesus in bringing his redemption into the world now and not waiting until later. It seems like if we could begin to understand that, it would start to change everything. And yet, so many Christians and so many churches today hear that gospel and it doesn't make any difference in how they actually live. I think we always need to be able to ask the question, if I became convinced tomorrow that Jesus Christ did not get out of the grave, would my life be different if the answer is no, then we're not living as people who are made alive in Jesus Christ. Your life should be radically transformed because Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. And if you can't figure out how your life is different today from a, a version of your life that, was, that you could be living, if that wasn't true, then you're not allowing yourselves to be shaped by grace. And I, I want to take a minute and step back and tell you about one of my favorite Oklahoma preachers who I think understood grace better than most of his contemporaries uh, while doing ministry in Oklahoma in the 1930s and 40s. He said, we're better at understanding that we need God's grace and it's not our works than we used to be. Uh, but what I like about Bill Alexander, William Bill Alexander, uh, was a preacher at the Christian churches here and around Oklahoma City, uh, is that Bill had an understanding that it shouldn't just change our understanding about what happens after we die. He began to really teach and model that understanding this kind of being alive in Christ should actually change what the church looks like and how people interact with each other. And he was one of those people that as a young man was about six foot five, 220 pounds, and people just wanted to be around Bill Alexander. Grew up kind of in and around Tulsa and Enid. His dad was a preacher, and you could ask him as a kid, what do you want to be? And he says, I don't care what I grow up to be as long as I'm not a preacher. So, of course, he becomes a preacher. Yeah, that's how all the Bible heroes get started. It's, I don't want to do that. And God says, guess what? Uh, so in the meantime, before he went off to be trained in uh, preacher school and seminary, uh, he actually started working at a country club. And he was the master of ceremonies and made $250 a week back in the 1930s, making sure that everyone that was there was having a wonderful time. And he was entertaining and he was engaging and people loved to be around him. Uh, but at some point while doing that, he decided that he needed to go into ministry. In later years, he would become so popular in Oklahoma City that they talked him into trying to run for uh, the United States Senate here in Oklahoma. Uh, Bill Alexander, uh, back in the 40s, ran as a Republican, though. And while today it's very difficult for a Democrat to win, no Republicans were winning an Oklahoma Senate seat back in the 1940s. And he lost. 
People tried to talk him into running for governor, and he never got around to doing that. Uh, he was the chaplain for Dwight D. Eisenhower's uh, convention when he was running for president. And so Bill Alexander was there uh, bringing the influence of Jesus into the political arena. At one time or another, he was featured in Time magazine. He opposed prohibition in Oklahoma. Uh, he, in fact, went before the state Senate and, and on hearings on repealing prohibition. And he said, listen, my 10-year-old son can call 100 different phone numbers in Oklahoma City and someone will show up and give him a bottle of whiskey. So I'm as opposed to drunkenness as the next guy, but let's not pretend that this is about getting alcohol out of our kids' lives. So there's a problem that every time a preacher in Oklahoma preaches on prohibition, the only people yelling amen the loudest are the bootleggers in the back because they like making all the money and causing all the trouble. So he just gets out, and he's doing things nobody else is doing. One point, some guy comes up and tries to rob Bill Alexander at gunpoint, and he just takes off his, his overcoat and gives it to the guy, gives him his wallet, and then he just starts talking to this robber. And after a while, the robber says, you know what? Here's your coat and your wallet back. And as Bill Alexander would later tell, those, tell people later, my only disappointment was that I couldn't talk him out of his gun. He says, I think I was close. I think I was close. Uh, if you've ever seen, um, go to the next, what's the next slide? This church that's here, uh, this church is over at 10th and Hudson in Oklahoma City downtown. When he was a young man, he was uh, hired to come in and, and work as the main minister here at this congregation, the first Christian church at 10th and Hudson. But while he was there, uh, he began to dream of a church for tomorrow. You see, Bill wanted the church to be a place that was full of life and not just alive with Christ, but full of living people. And so when he would uh, work in churches, he would build bowling alleys for the teens and have dance parties on Saturdays. Uh, one of the churches... Uh, that he built, uh, he called it the Church of Tomorrow. And this one's over at 36th and, uh, you've seen this church? Yeah, the Egg Church. This was his great vision. 1956, the first Christian church began working on this $2.5 million building uh, that's really just a few miles from here. Wanted to be a church of tomorrow, a church that had an enormous youth center that would invite people to come in and get off the streets and out of the influences of the world and into the influence of Jesus Christ. And he just was never interested in stuffiness. In fact, this church was being built a few miles from here the same time that the room you're sitting in right now was being built here at Northwest 23rd and Geraldine. This part is the auditorium, the oldest part of the building, the part that was here in the 50s. And so a group of Christians here was planting seeds for this church while he was planting seeds for that church, the Church of Tomorrow, a mid-modern uh, classic. Uh, the first four years that it existed, it even hosted the Miss Oklahoma Beauty Pageant. You can imagine that not all the preachers in the area liked Bill Alexander's approaches. But really, these are where he uh, grew his ministry into maturity. Uh, Bill Alexander would do all of this before the age of 45 when he and his wife died in a plane crash on the way to speak at a Christian rally in Pennsylvania. Full of life, full of a commitment that the church should make a difference in the world and should meet people where they were. But it really started back as a college student when he was at the University uh, of Tulsa, he was doing his ministry work there, uh, and when he was there, uh, in, in, he took a volunteer position in Stroud. And so after leaving his job at the Master of Ceremonies at the Country Club, while a student at the University of Tulsa in 1935, 
He volunteered to take over the helm and try out his revolutionary ideas of getting people at church to quit acting like they were a funeral all the time and start acting like they were alive in Christ in Stroud, Oklahoma. When he got there to the church in Stroud, there were 34 members who regularly attended. So never wanted to sit around and wait for things to happen. This fearless young minister started going door to door in Stroud, a community of about 3,000 people, and inviting everyone to church. And as he would invite them, many people were not interested in the church. Most said no. And one neighbor declared, hey, listen, buddy, you're wasting your time. Your new church is dead. So Alexander seized on that idea. He then went back to all the doors he'd been knocking on, and he told them that the little church at Stroud was indeed dead, and he would be performing its funeral and burial services for it this Sunday. Well, of course, everyone wanted to see what this was all about. So people from all over the country came to watch the spectacle, and when they walked in that Sunday morning to the First Christian Church of Stroud, there in the front of the room was a coffin. They came in and they sat down and he started preaching the church's funeral. This young minister, who was always a showman at heart, slowly creaked open the lid of the coffin and invited everyone to come by and look. And as they walked by the coffin, Bill Alexander had placed a mirror so that everyone could see their own face. You were once dead in your transgressions, and then you were placed in Christ, and now you are alive with Christ. But if you still live as though you are dead, you've got a problem. By the time he left Stroud, that church on every Sunday was packed with about 600 people, full of life. Bowling alleys, dance uh, events, preachers would come in and just be so upset about the kinds of things he was doing. Uh, one of the ministers along Church Row was appalled by all the fun going on at First Christian Church. One minister was so upset that he entered the church's rec area just as Alexander was teaching some students how to do the Lindy Hop. I don't know the Lindy Hop, but it's, I guess it's a dance move. And as this minister comes in, he wags his finger at Bill Alexander and he tells him, Your day of retribution will come, Mr. Alexander. On the Lord's day, dancing, corrupting the young people in this community, this is blasphemy. Your job is to prepare these children to meet their God. Brother, answered Alexander, I'll leave it to you and your church to teach them how to die. You just leave it to me and my church to teach them how to live. That was his approach. And that everywhere he went and he proclaimed the gospel, people flocked to it. And was it because of his charisma? Maybe. Or maybe it was because he understood that the church shouldn't feel like a funeral home of people waiting to die so Jesus could give them life. That the life that God promises, he promises us to us now, and we can start living accordingly and making a difference in the world today. This is an Ephesians 2 understanding of what Christianity should be like. That we understand that we're not waiting to die, that we are alive in Christ. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Don't stay there. 
Don't stay where you were when Jesus, by grace, lifted you out of the grave and out of the coffin and gave you new life. Don't stay in that place. If we understand how dead we were, if we understand the love and mercy and grace of God, if we understand that we are already seated in Christ in the heavenly realms with all power and authority in Him being shared with us, then we aren't a church teaching people how to die. We're a church that is calling people and helping them to understand how to live. We then live into verse 10, where we understand that we are God's handiwork, created in advance to do His good work. In the world. If you're sitting here this morning, the question that you have to ask if you've never asked it before is Are you dead or are you alive? Because if you're dead, Jesus is already the gift that God has in store for you. Jesus is already the gift that if you will simply receive it through faith, The Bible tells us that if you believe and are baptized, you are baptized into his death so that you can be baptized into his resurrection and his life. And you start living abundant, eternal life forever as the people who have the Spirit within us adopted as God's children. If you've never received that gift, what a great day today would be to receive it. If you need to come forward this morning Or if you need to in your life begin living as if you're alive and not waiting to die, do that this week as we stand and worship together.